Should Christians support America? Should we be patriotic and defend our country, perhaps claiming it's the greatest country on earth? Or should Christians be opposed to America? Should we be embarrassed because it's an essentially irredeemably racist country full of ongoing injustice? Hi, folks. This is Andy, the analytical preacher. And as I record this right after a July the 4th holiday here in America, that question's been brought to me a number of times by Christians across a broad spectrum of views and backgrounds. Believe it or not, the answer to this question, the biblical answer to this question, has much more to do with human nature than it does with American history. Let me briefly explain. Scripture teaches us that we are all, in some sense, predisposed, that's the nice word, or biased, that's probably the more accurate word, that we're all predisposed, that we're all biased in our most heartfelt beliefs. Now, that includes our beliefs about religion and faith, but also about politics and public policy. We get these ideas from a number of places in Scripture. One of the best places to start there are verses in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul tells this young preacher, Timothy, that people have itching ears and that we really know what we want to believe and how we want the world to work. And so we seek out people that tell us what we want to hear. In Romans 16, that same writer, the Apostle Paul says that there are smooth talkers that can lead us off into myths. How could you lead a rational, objective person in the 21st century off into a myth? Because you're telling them what they wanted to hear to begin with. And so if we know what we want to believe, if we know how we think the world works before we ever even seek out evidence, then what happens, of course, is then we go and seek out that evidence. We seek out leaders. We seek out speakers. We seek out groups of similarly minded people that reinforce those hopes, that reinforce those beliefs. The problem is when we already know how we want the world to work or think the world does work. And then we have itching ears and we seek out common folks with common beliefs that reinforce those beliefs to us. It tends to push us to the extreme of our views and away from the views of individuals who naturally held different opinions coming into the game. So the Bible tells us in places like Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 13, 18, 17, Proverbs 28, 26, to be careful weighing evidence from only one side, that we're a fool if we think we understand how things work and never consider evidence that would counter or contradict how we think the world works. Jesus tells us you have to judge people by their fruit. You have to judge people by their actions because it's so easy to get caught up. He says, beware of false prophets. He tells a parable about two sons. One tells the father one thing, one tells the father the other, but they act opposite of what they told the father. And Jesus is just saying, be careful. It's so easy to get caught up in our own predisposed biases that we literally go to the extremes, and ignore evidence to the contrary. It's important to note here that academic research in the modern world backs up exactly what the Bible's been teaching us for thousands of years. Probably the best example in my mind is a professor of social psychology at New York University, a gentleman named Jonathan Haidt. And he's the author of a book called The Righteous Mind. And the premise of the book is simply this. How is it that we can live in the same country 
and have access to the same facts and yet have such widely divergent opinions on a number of things, but including kind of starting with and including politics? How is it that we see the same data, the same facts, and yet come away with such wildly differing conclusions? And his answer, he says, which has not just been done in America, but has been done worldwide, is essentially this. Because we think we know how the world works, we want to believe this is how the world works in the first place, and then we go looking for supporting evidence for that. And so we find the evidence that supports our view and say, that must be correct. And we ignore the evidence that counters our view. Well, there's probably some way to explain that away, or maybe it's just a small sample or it's whatever. His sort of catchphrase, his sort of tagline that I believe came from this book, The Righteous Mind, is intuition comes first, strategic reasoning second. So he's saying the exact same thing that the apostle Paul told Timothy and that Jesus warned his followers about that Solomon wrote about in the book of Proverbs 3,000 years ago. We know how we want the world to work. And then we go find leaders and other people in subgroups and we find evidence that supports our view. And we essentially become experts at blocking out any evidence to the contrary. So that really explains this great divide in our country. And I think it explains why the rhetoric gets so heated, why one person says this is the greatest country ever. And if you don't like every single thing about this country, then get on a plane and move to Russia, which seems to be a little bit of an overkill on the one side. And the other person says, no, this country is horrible and I hate it and I'm embarrassed by it. And I wish I could move to a far. You get these extreme positions And they really have nothing to do with an objective view of the situation. So here's what happens. Some people are just naturally born. They're just normally, naturally inclined toward tradition, toward lines of authority. They have a real loyalty to their country. They have an unwavering support for the different groups that they belong to. They tend to like like history. They hold the past pretty dear. And it causes them then, of course, to gloss over the imperfections that they see in their own group or their own family or their own country. And when they debate, they tend to debate by focusing on the positives. You've got another group. They're no more right or no more wrong than the first group. They're no more common or no less common than the first group. But more naturally, they view the world as the haves versus the have-nots. They're concerned about fairness and equal outcomes. They identify with the underdogs. They want to support those who they think get left behind. That's how they see the world working, not as this natural place that's good and where you have respect for authority and there's progression toward bigger and better things over time as the first group does, but they see it as one where the haves are always suppressing the have-nots. They're very concerned about that idea of being left behind, fairness, etc. This second group, they tend to see all progress is tainted. If it wasn't perfect, then it's wholly imperfect. And they only want to debate or argue based on the imperfections that they see. And you can see how this causes a problem. One group refuses to acknowledge any imperfections, and the other group refuses to acknowledge any of the positive things about progress related to, again, the group or the country in question. Now, here's the truth. Every one of these traditionalist folks 
They know good and well that no person, including their spouse or their child, is perfect. No human institution, no government, no country is perfect. There's no reason for them to ignore the imperfections. In fact, if they truly loved their country, as they claim they do, if they're truly patriots, they should want to address every shortcoming as aggressively as they can possibly address it. Progressives, of course, have to sort of flip that coin over and say, though there are imperfections and have always been imperfections, there are in every human organization. My children are not perfect. My spouse is not perfect. My parents are not perfect. And whatever country that I would pick in the world to say, this is the best country. America is not the greatest nation, but X country is great. They clearly would have to say that country also has tremendous imperfections. So the short answer to the question is, what the Bible encourages us to do is be very objective and even-handed. And so a biblical worldview says, yes, you should support America, but you should always be pressing non-stop to identify and to fix her faults. And honestly, this has been the approach of some of what most folks would consider the greatest Americans that have ever led giants of history like Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. saw the same thing. They would make comments about America's not irredeemably corrupt as some charge, but America certainly has a problem in even living up to her own values. If we could just get America to live up to the ideals that she esteems, that she promotes, she would be a much better place. So they seem to support the country. King didn't say we need to wipe away this or move blacks to a different place. No, he said we have to force America to look at herself in a mirror and see the evils of segregation. And we have to take a moral crusade to say, change this and make it better, as opposed to we cannot fix this country because it is irredeemable. Now, for each person, that line in that objective even-handedness is going to obviously fall in a different place. And again, based on sort of our natural tendencies to believe in this or to promote that or to be concerned about that. But if we say America's a horrible place and I hate everything about it, and then we begin to go with the rest of society and say, let's work on these problems, people aren't going to be interested in working if I come to you and say, these are the problems with your spouse. This is the problem with your kids. These are the problem with your parents. And then I say, hey, let's sit down and work these issues out. You're going to go, I've got no interest. You came into this conversation bashing my child, bashing my spouse. Of course, they're not perfect, but they're pretty good, decent people. And I've liked them and da, da, da. It's going to be a lot harder to find that common ground when we do that. If I go into the conversation going, hey, by the way, my spouse is perfect. My kids are perfect. Don't you dare utter one word about them as we try to make progress into the future, then clearly that side's going to go, how are we going to make progress into the future if I can't bring up anything negative about your spouse or your kids when this whole process is about improving our relationships across our families and our spouses and our kids? But again, back to this biblical idea of itching ears, it would suggest to us, and modern day research again supports this idea, that most politicized individuals are far more concerned, and I say far more, are far more concerned with towing the line 
that their political peers, that their cultural and societal peers believe. They're far more concerned with echoing the same thoughts and beliefs, standing up against the same opposite group. They're far more concerned with that than they ever will be about objective information. I'll give you two quick examples. The Cultural Cognition Project at Yale University has shown that even what scientific evidence people choose to believe is, and I quote from their research, chiefly determined by their cultural values. How can we come to such radically different ideas about COVID and the appropriate way to address a COVID pandemic? The reason is because we don't even see scientific evidence. This is not I'm not just talking about people on the right, and I'm not just talking about people on the left. I'm talking about human beings. What we choose to believe, even from scientific facts, chiefly determined by someone's cultural values. Another researcher at the University of California at Berkeley has noted in his research, and again, I quote, individuals can be expected to form perceptions of risk societal risk, environmental risk, crime risk, public policy risk, etc., he says, that reflect and reinforce the values they share with others. What is it that's important? What threatens our society today? What do we need to do to make our society today better? Is our country progressing? Is it a good country or a bad country? Where does it stand relative to others? All of those perceptions are primarily formed in our head to reinforce the values that we share with our like-minded group. It's sad, but that's just the truth. Stephen Mintz, a history professor at the University of Texas, has said that he sees in today's social justice, and again, I'll quote, with its emphasis on moral purity and concern with atonement for past sins, he says he sees successor to earlier religious revivals. The issue there, of course, becomes it's not now just this group has an opinion about this and this group has an opinion about that. But as you get into these almost religious mindsets, it becomes one group is completely right and one group is completely wrong. And again, it just pushes us to the extreme of our beliefs and creates a chasm and a divide. So here we can look at some facts about America and we can see how the two groups divide on that and kind of see how unobjective they both are. The idea has been put forth that America is evil, irredeemably so, because it was founded as a nation for the sole purpose of building, perpetuating, and expanding slavery. And really, if that is the genesis of everything we are, that creates real credibility questions for that country. But here's the truth. Historically and factually, that's just nonsense. That's people on the extreme if they can't find the evidence that they want to back up their argument, essentially fabricating the evidence that they need to back up their argument. Here's what happened. Southern Democrats did try to secede from the Union to start the Confederacy for the exact reason that's being mentioned about America as a whole, because they said America is not as supportive as they need to be about perpetuating and expanding slavery. The Union, the United States of America, was ultimately trying to draw it down and starve it out of existence. And so the South, the Southern Democrats, they seceded from the Union to do exactly if the Confederacy were a live nation today, 
then all of us, I think, would say they're irredeemably racist. Can't you just wipe that chalkboard clean and start over? But the Confederacy lost. But here's the thing. As soon as one person says that, they also then need to say, but things that America did allow, like the three-fifths compromise. There was a small minority of bigoted individuals in the South who wanted the three-fifths compromise, and America allowed it to come into existence. America didn't found our nation to build and perpetuate a slaveocracy, but America did acquire the state of Florida from the Spanish, essentially to help perpetuate slavery because slaves in the Deep South were escaping to Florida and hooking up with the Spanish or even with the Seminole Indians there. There are still today what are called Black Seminoles. If you're not familiar with that, you can look into the history of Black Seminoles. There may be some other minor reasons why the U.S. wanted to purchase Florida from Spain or why Spain wanted to sell it. The primary reason was to stop escape slaves from having a place to acquire their freedom. America needs to address that issue. But here's the truth. The latest Gallup survey, which was from 2021, and it included adults in 122 different countries. The latest Gallup survey shows almost 900 million people worldwide want to migrate to a new country. And the United States of America is the number one choice. And for as long as they've been taking this survey, the United States of America has been the number one choice. And not just number one. The U.S. was the desired place for migration more than twice as much as the number two countries, which are Canada or Germany, and more than four times as much as France, the UK, or Australia, which were essentially tied for third on the list. People who want to migrate from their own home country, the overwhelming majority of them want to move to a Western nation, and most of them want to move to the United States of America. I have personally spoken to immigrants In the last 10 or 12 years, from the best I can remember, six different Asian countries, six African countries, 10 Central and South American countries, and seven islands in the Caribbean. About 80 or 90 percent of those folks said America was their first choice, that they believe America is the best country in the world, that America was turned out to be even better than they dreamed it would be. About 75 percent of them tell me. All of them are like, yeah, this is good. I'm glad I moved. I'm not going back. This is permanent. About three out of four say America's even better than I dreamed that it would be. And the reason they tell me is because there's less persecution here and there's more opportunities here. There are some harrowing stories, whether it's Hmongs from Southeast Asia or Tamils from Southern India or different tribe or ethnicities in Africa or different religions in South America. There are harrowing stories about how the how bigotry still exists in the world and how particularly ethnic minorities, tribal minorities in other countries are treated horribly. And so folks are telling me America is far from perfect in her treatment of her minorities, but she's much better than the country I came from. And I feel like if I press, 
we can continue to make progress in America, whereas we pressed and pressed in my home country for hundreds of years and can't think of a single thing that we made better in terms of how ethnic minorities are treated. So again, I think the progressives who say America's a trash country, I think they have to answer to these facts of then why do so many folks want to come here? Why do they love it so much when they get here? And why do folks who have faced active persecution in their home countries claim that there's so much less active persecution here? And those who say, yeah, but every country in history has had some form of slavery and ethnic persecution in America. That's a that's a bad excuse for the traditionalists to take. We cannot deny slavery in America We cannot run from our treatment of Native Americans. We would make contractual obligations to Native Americans, and then we would just blatantly break those contractual obligations. We cannot deny what happened in the Jim Crow South. All of those things are horrible blemishes on our country. We have to stand up and say those things are bad and those things are wrong. How did we get to those places? And what do we do to make sure that we don't get back to those places? In my opinion, as a Christian, it is a blight on our country that there are still Confederate monuments. There are still buildings named after Confederate politicians and soldiers. There are still buildings on college campuses named after slaveholders. I find all of that unacceptable. Does it mean to me America is irredeemable? We should wipe it away and start over. No, it would appear to me based on my experience and the experience of all these immigrants that I've spoken to that America probably is the greatest country on the planet right now. But it is so far from perfect. How can the greatest country on the planet still have Confederate monuments and college buildings named after slaveholders? It just boggles the mind. And those things have to be improved. The incarceration rate of young black men in America is an astounding figure. As a Christian, I'm not arguing that you turn away from crime. I'm not arguing that at all. The Bible says Governments literally exist to punish crime and to hold those who commit crimes accountable. But there's an issue that needs to be addressed with the incarceration rate. We have to figure out what's going on and how we address that. If you look at the dreamers, politicians have been trying now for a dozen years to give a permanent fixture to the dreamers, those who were brought to the country by their parents when they were too young to make the decision themselves. Sometimes they're called DACA, the better name for them, dreamers. Why isn't our country addressing that? How can we be the greatest country on earth? Which again, I can argue factually, objectively that we are, but how can we be the greatest country on earth And yet still, again, Confederate monuments, buildings on college campuses, names after slaveholders, and dreamers left in limbo having to reapply for DACA every two years because our politicians simply can't seem to put a permanent solution in place. I see the problems with our nation. And as a Christian, as a Christian who's told, love your neighbor as yourself and always look out for the orphans and the widows, as a Christian, I see those problems. And I'm desperate to address those problems. But as a Christian, my fear is if we continue to allow our own natural predispositions to push us away from each other, we're going to be far removed from addressing those issues as a joint nation that we need to be. And so, again, 
Should we be patriots or should we hate our country? No, I think we should be supportive of our country. And I think we should be aggressive in pruning away her imperfections. But we have to do that as a united people who can acknowledge going in. Hey, I'm predisposed this way and I'm predisposed that way. Let's try to objectively find the middle ground where without trashing our country or hating it or teaching others to hate it, we can work together to aggressively and creatively solve the issues that we can all clearly see exist. That's how I believe the Bible would tell us to address this idea of how we view our country. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Andy.